Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. What I think is amazing about him is this prodigious originality. If Charles Howell's pilgrimage is not the greatest long poem in English of the Romantic period, then Don Juan certainly is. Given that Wordsworth's The Prelude was not published and unheard of or unknown until 1850, these are the two great long poems of the English Romantic era, uh, enormously influential. Uh, his friends were told him, of course, not to publish Don Juan, not to continue with it. That only made him continue with it more eagerly. I would want to say, I mean, one of the things I keep pondering hours thinking to myself is what I ought to do is write a book on Byron's poetic masterpieces because there are so many of them. It is not just Charles Howard and Don Juan, of which people may have heard. There are so many other great poems, the Jiao, the Prisoner of Chilon, Beppo, Mazeppa, some fascinating neoclassical plays. Uh, the originality really is prodigious, and I think these are marks that Byron mostly is setting for himself, and it's lucky in a way that he was in Italy, uh, in a foreign culture, where he could set his own marks and decide himself uh, what he wanted to do and where he wanted to take his, his talent. I have no consistency except in politics, and that possibly arises from my indifference on the subject altogether. The curious words of British Romantic poet Lord Byron, taken from Richard Lansdowne's latest publication, Byron's Letters and Journals, published by Oxford University Press. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What makes a poet? And did Lord Byron define what it meant to be one? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with one of the world's leading experts on Lord Byron, Richard Lansdowne, whose latest publication, Byron's Letters and Journals, has just been published by Oxford University Press, where Richard argues... The letters give the truest portrait of the man. They possess at their best in their ease, freshness and racy vigour a very high literary value. Richard goes on to state, Like all correspondents, Byron orientated himself to whoever he was addressing. His mother, wife, half-sister, our latest mistress, his publisher or the unfortunate Spoonie Hansen, or his intimate friends. The journals, however, are written for himself and give us a peculiarly intimate sense of revelation. So, what type of a poet, man and lover was Lord Byron? And how did a shy boy from Aberdeen become mad, bad and dangerous to know? Hi, everybody. Um, um, and thank you, Sue, so much for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Richard Lansdowne. I'm a professor of modern English literature and culture at the University of Groningen in uh, northern Holland, uh, where I've been just for six months or so. For 20 years before that, I worked in Australia and have been working on Lord Byron, but the romantic, romantic poets and writers generally, but Lord Byron above all, ever since I was a postgraduate at University College London uh, in the early 1990s. So, um, I've been involved with Byron's work for a long, long time, and it's wonderful to have been able to produce this edition of his letters, which I think are some of the best in the, in the language. 
Richard, what an interesting collection of letters you've brought out from um, um, Lord Byron. I have to say they're very provocative. They're very, some of them are very funny, very racy, uh, full of energy, full of vibrancy. And uh, there's so much to play with. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can uh, take it from there. Do you think great poetry excuses bad behaviour? That is a monumental question to start with, too. Uh, and, and very, and it's probably fair to say that whatever we're going to say about Byron's letters in the remainder of our discussion won't might shed some light on it. If you want a rapid answer right from the get-go, I would probably say no. Um, you, you know, we have some poets who have behaved very badly to, to people around them. It's also true, however, of course, that with the passage of time, a lot of that bad behavior kind of disappears. Um, You know, Dante was not a particularly nice guy, but it's uh, all uh, many, many hundreds of years ago. Ezra Pound was a a fascist and an anti-Semite and a a traitor. It's just much more recent. uh, And so we remember the bad things alongside the good things in people's work. Do you follow me? Over time, you know, the, the bad does... I'm glad to say tend to sink away, but no, I don't think you should ever justify bad behaviour because you're because you have talent. No. So when I say uh, Byron or maybe the Byronic hero, what jumps into mind for you? What do you think of? Yeah, that's a, 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 another super question. I, I what does one ever think about anybody? You know, cousin Tom or something. When you think about them, it, yet on the other hand, it's true that unlike someone like Shakespeare, in the case of Byron, we have so many images of him. Uh, we have images in, in paint, graphic images. We have uh, accounts in, in prose and so on and so forth. So we have a much richer harvest of kind of images of him than we have of poets before his era. And because he was so famous in his time, of course, he was repeatedly captured and his image was reprocessed again and again and again. Um, so you can, it is true, you can get a mental image, and I think anyone who likes Byron will probably have a slightly different one. For me, I don't know, what do I think of? A boyish figure dressed in a rather dandily way with a, with a moderate limp on a terrace above the Mediterranean, maybe, pondering the Colosseum, getting out of a gondola. Uh, for me, it's always, I always think of him, I must say, in, in Italy rather than England. And if it's any help... There are many, many portraits of him, of course. One of them graces the cover of the book. None of them, none of the formal portraits, to my mind, really capture him. The best two that I know uh, are by people informally. There's a lovely one, a silhouette, a drawing cut out of card by Lee Hunt's wife, whose name I now forget, in Genoa in 1822 or something, of Byron in a riding costume with a riding whip and a riding hat on. And another lovely one of around about the same time by Count Dorsey of a man with rather thinning hair and a pair of plaid trousers, if I remember. Those two informal images capture much more of him, I think, than the, than the, than the stage-managed portraits that are much more famous, much more commonly reproduced. He clearly was a very magnetic character. I'm just wondering, though, Richard, how much of a free thinker uh, was he? Like, he, he liked to present himself, it seems, as a bit of an outsider. But um, it's not that clear-cut, was he one or not? Yeah, impulsive, certainly. And, and what, but what one often wants to think about him is he, his, his example makes us want to think a little bit about what impulsiveness really amounts to. Many of his most apparently impulsive decisions 
uh, actually perhaps come from much deeper-seated impulses, if you know what I mean. Uh, the, his, his grand tour, his escape to the Mediterranean in 1811 or something, or his marriage, or his final trip to Greece. Uh, sometimes these will look to us like um, decisions taken on the, on, the, on the turn of a dime or something like that, the, the toss of a coin, but they come from something, I think, always much, much deeper in him. Um, to what extent that's true of everybody, I don't know, but certainly it's true of him. So impulsiveness and something more deep-seated always intertwined, I think. Certainly a lot of the letters show his great appetite for life. They also show a very self-critical side and uh, and the fact that he went in for a lot of uh, deep self-analysis and certainly how he analysed his relationship with his mother. Yeah, yeah. Is this as much of a paradox as perhaps it appears? It, it, an appetite for life does often accompany, I think, a, a sense of, of uh, of self-analysis or a habit of self-analysis uh, in his case. I, I don't think he could respond uh, to the world about him in the way that he obviously did, and in his letters most peculiarly powerfully, I think, without also realising that his vision was part of that world, that his that he was part of it, what's his role in these things, what is his role in uh, responding to the world, what is the nature of his own consciousness. Uh yeah, I think uh, we might return to his mother, who's a crucial figure, and yet he does uh, indeed recognise um, the importance of her role in his background. I've no doubt about that. You have collated, I think it's about 300 letters in um, Barron's letters and journals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they're, they're also varied and very emotional and have a lot of force to them. But presumably you were faced with, obviously, getting rid of some and, you know, as you edged it down and whittled down your list. So what was that like? Because every letter that you um, you don't present to the reader gives a, certainly a, an, another flavour or another feel for the man. Yeah, absolutely. I, it is a, uh, I, many people who've reviewed the book very kindly have, have commented on what a vile job it must have been to have to cut ones out. Uh, and one or two reviewers have nicely pointed out to me, you know, for the ones that I certainly should have kept in, you get that kind of awful uh, moment to go, oh, no, of course you're quite right. He wrote a letter, but just before he went to Greece, jumped on a boat to go, what should happen? Literally, I think, in a day or two before he, he departed from Italy, he got a letter from Goethe, of all people, um, and was, as you, as you, as you might expect, this is a great, you know, pack of familiars of, of, of German letters, he was uh, awestruck and gratified and wrote to Goethe in a kind of hasty uh, lines before he went away and certainly in retrospect I should have kept that one in uh, you're just trying to get I suppose as many as you say as many of the moods uh, that you can possibly capture uh, certainly I, I think all readers of Byron's letters know that there are ones you just couldn't uh, uh, get rid of do you know what I mean but you're just trying to get as many moods as you possibly can of what was a such a multifaceted individual. But within those moods, Richard, you're reading them as as Richard. Somebody else will read them as Tom or John or whatever, bringing their own history and emotional uh, emotion and psychology into it, and will, I suppose, um, read into different things in different ways and see it see the layers uh, somewhat differently. So, did you find that somewhat constraining in any way, or did you have to consult lots of different people, or how did you go about it? 
Well, I, I think what was I, did I end up saying is somewhere in the introduction somewhere that the, the value, where does the value of these letters lie? But, you know, they, what do they tell us about Byron's own time? Uh, they, have, they are historical documents. What do they tell us also about his creativity? They are sort of literary critical documents. They tell us something about his work as a poet and so on and so forth, as a creative person. Yet they are also creative objects in their own right. They are, obje- they are aesthetic objects in their own right, uh, much as poems are. So that was always my kind of touchstone. I, I can't jump outside my own skin as an editor. I've spent many years of my life in company with Byron, yet on the other hand, I try always not to be uh, proprietorial about him if I can possibly avoid it. Maybe I didn't, I don't know. But always wanted to try and keep a certain kind of distance so that, so precisely that uh, other readers could see him uh, without my uh, overshadowing the experience too much. But always I was trying to think of those three particular elements, you know, that what light do these documents shed on his time, what light do they shed on his creativity, and, and, the, and, the, and the, just as importantly, what life do they demonstrate in themselves. Just wondering, Richard, do you think it's fair to judge a person, anyone, be it a poet, a politician, um, whoever they are, by their letters? Because they're not exactly, uh, they don't offer a complete picture of a person and they don't necessarily always provide us with the truth. So I'm just wondering, like, whether it's an email, a letter or a quick note somebody leaves, you know, they, you know, it's not necessarily the exact story at any given time. Yeah, I, I look, I couldn't agree more. Yet, on the other hand, uh, have we got anything better? Uh, uh, I, I think in your series of broadcasts, you've, you, you, you've, harped, you've returned to, to people's letters repeatedly, and, and we do. We love them. Uh, they, are, they continue to be published. They continue to have a peculiar magnetic appeal to, to readers. And they have done, actually, I might add, it more or less ever since Byron's time, the publication of Byron's letters, is not, I think, the, by any means, the first case of a, bar, of a, of a writer's uh, personal documents being published in this way. But it's certainly a very important case. And thereafter, uh, the matter of uh, publishing people's letters becomes much more significant in publishing history. Um, they are not, they can never be a complete, there can never be, obviously, a complete picture. Biographies are of course, much more historical. They give us chains and sequences of cause and effects and so on and so forth. But it's also true that, that letters uniquely give us something of the variety of their authors. Uh, I'm at the moment talking of great letter writers. I'm reading Vincent van Gogh's letters. Oh, yeah. And what one can't help noting there, fascinating though those letters are, is that 90% of them are written to one man and that one man is his brother, Theo. And so... That dominates the collection, and we don't get anything like the same remarkable breadth of correspondence and, and, and that we do in the case of Byron. And wonderful those Vincent's letters are, they are comparatively a confined affair. It's the matter of writing to different people in different voices that makes collections of letters of this kind so, so unique. But you see patternings, I suppose, and they give you certain types of insights into how a letter writer wants to present themselves to different people, or, or as you say, the different voices that they echo through in their letters. 
don't they? Oh yes, absolutely, definitely. You, I mean, you, you can you could get some of of Barnes' lessons. Well, you could do it all over the place. You could take the addressee off the top, and I could probably, and other readers of Barnes' lessons could probably do just the same trick and say, I'm sure that one's to Augusta. I'm sure that one's to Teresa. I'm sure that's to Lady Byron. I'm sure that's to Thomas More. Um, he drops into, as we do with all our friends, I'll take it, drop-ins and relations to. We, he drops into certain idioms. And then, of course, wonderfully, you get unprecedented letters, or some of them in here, you know, where he writes to somebody else, uh, and the voice changes all over again. Uh, that is part of and I, I try to capture and keep a few of those outside the, the, the major streams of correspondence. Um, some letters to, to people, unprecedented letters, unrepeated ones, where again, you just hear uh, a different voice again. The letters to Lady Melbourne are absolutely incredible. She was a very uh, pragmatic, switched-on uh, lady. Uh, she was his confidant, and she also introduced him to a lot of his um, his flings, so to speak. She networked with a, quite a lot of um, uh, high-ranking women who seemed to find uh, Lord Byron particularly attractive. I might get you to read out one or two of the letters because uh, they show great psychological depth on behalf of uh, Lord Byron, but also yeah. how he was well able and playfully well able to play people. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Here, for example, um, lovely one to Lady Melbourne, it seems to me, from 25th of September, 1812. Um, Lady Melbourne, as you say, was, was so well connected that she was well connected both to uh, Byron's famous mistress, Lady Caroline Lamb, and to uh, his future wife. Um, so she has a unique and awkward role to play. My dear Lady Melbourne, it would answer no purpose to write a syllable on any subject whatever and neither accelerate nor retard what we wish to prevent. She must be left to chance. Conjugal affection and the Kilkenny theatricals are equally in your favour. You see Lady Caroline Lamb, I think, has been dragged off to Ireland uh, by her family to try and break up their affair. Um, for my part, it is an accursed business towards nor from which I shall not move a single step. If she throws herself upon me, if not, the sooner it's over, the better. From this moment, I have done with it. Only before she returns, allow me to know that I may act accordingly. But there will be nothing to fear before that time, as if a woman and selfish woman also would not fill up the vacancy with the first comer. You know what I mean? So he assumes that Lady Caroline left to her own devices. Uh, and certainly in, in being uh, separated from him, uh, will quickly find a substitute. Da, 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 you follow me? On that point, how would you describe Richard, his attitude to women? Like, clearly he had a great intellectual relationship with Lady Melbourne and they both found each other very stimulating company. They, it seems mm. through the letters that they kind of really got off on each other in this kind of weird way. Yeah. But in his general dealings with women... Um, it seems that he was, he just went through women, was very capable of discarding them when the next best came along and didn't seem to look back ever. You know, he didn't seem to be a, a man plagued by regret or remorse in any way, that he just, just pressed on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that is true. And, and uh, to some extent, and, I, and, I, and it is very sad to note that this uh, epistolary relationship with um, a person he called his aunt, Lady Melbourne, simply evaporated once he left England in 1816. He never wrote to her again and noticed her death with sadness a few years later. Yeah, uh, his 
the relationship to women are very, well, they're very paradoxical. We get all sorts of things here. There are cases that maybe we'll discuss in a minute, including Claire Claremont. There are cases that are deeply regrettable. Then we have cases of profound dependency. There is a, we have a letter uh, to, a, to a chambermaid at Newstead Abbey um, who had the temerity to jilt him. Do you follow me? To, here he is, the lord of the manor, and she a modest, a humble chambermaid, and she elects to go off with another man, and he is um, very far from being able to take a kind of aristocratic and lordly attitude. He's devastated. So, um, yet we have all sorts of of attitudes from him in these letters here. His attitude to his half-sister is, is tragic and woefully bleak. His attitude to Teresa Gichli, his long-time mistress in Italy, is full of, of love and affection. Um, it is true. Uh, he doesn't look back a lot, and in the years in Venice, he seems to have seen himself as a playboy and a stud to some extent, though I think he saw that that too was something of a pose and a ruse and was glad to get out of it in the end and felt that Teresa had rescued him from a, from a, that sort of lifestyle. Certainly women are a major theme here, and there are many, many different attitudes to them registered. But there seems to be absolutely no sentimentality on any level once they have, you know, passed their requirements. Do you know what I mean? Surplus to requirements, so to speak. Because it's hard to, um, you know, uh, reconcile some of his antics, sexual antics, with the beautiful words and some of his most exquisite poetry. And to see that the same man would be so harsh and cruel to so many women. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I, 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 or what can I say? I, I guess both both of those things register truths about him. Um, the correspondence with Teresa Beachley is perhaps the most profound here. There is uh, there is an immense dependency. Uh, there is no question about that. He he uh, he really becomes almost uh, suicidal with anxiety about her on certain cases. Decides that he ought to leave the country altogether to rescue her reputation and so forth. And then uh, to, in the early 1820s, we see a calmly kind of domesticated matrimonial set of relationships there uh, that are those of a sort of middle-aged married couple. Uh, there, are, there is transition all the time. I, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. There is, there, is a, there is a good deal of pain. There is a good deal of... Um, rejection, there is a good deal of, of a, a fair amount of cruelty, but it's also true a fair amount of dependency too. It struck me as I was progressing through the letters that, you know, what what would we have done with Lord Byron today on social media? Because, you know, what he was willing to say at any given time or what he was willing to put pen to paper to. You know, there's a great letter he has to um, the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge and um, he, he, he writes, I trust you do not permit yourself to be depressed by the temporary partiality of what is called the public for such favourites of the moment. And he goes on about how and, how and why they should be compared or not. And it's a very revealing letter and it shows his contempt uh, um, almost to critics and to what's perceived to be, you know, standards and the, doing the right thing. Yeah. And it 
it's it, it's incredibly interesting. But if you could, you know, picture that man today and dealing with the ravages and harsh environment of social media, um, he yeah. would have been crucified, literally. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, I've no doubt. I, the, it's important to remember that, um, well, we, we've already spoken about the, the variousness of his letter writing. He writes to people in such different ways. He, in, 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 in letters to Coleridge, it's uh, fellow poet to fellow poet. And that, to some extent, is one of the poses. Um, do we not all, to some extent, pose uh, in the different letters that we write? Uh, that is one of the poses that he adopts, uh, that of aristocratic indifference uh, to criticism. Uh, that is what he, and he's writing to one of the most um, oversensitive, one might say, poets in the English language here, uh, trying to cultivate in him, I guess, a degree of, of, um, of uh, impunity to what critics uh, say. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that, that response is one I can well imagine him uh, taking to uh, the, 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 the social media world of our own and the sort of gotcha moments and our apparently bottomless taste and desire to go through the litter bins of people and find out how they really are. Yeah, I, I, one, this is one of his responses to cultivate a sort of aristocratic disregard. But we know from elsewhere that he was sometimes, you know, morbidly hurt uh, by what people said. He, God knows he had some terrible things to say about John Keats, but was very um, sad to hear what he was given, told was the truth, that, that Keats had been rendered almost uh, suicidal or, or, or deeply sick by a, by a poor review of one of his poems. So, yeah, you know, just trying to cultivate 